review just a little bit so we get this song in our mind. This is after Moses has uh, basically given instructions and exhortations to this second generation of Israelites. The ones that are now about ready to cross the Jordan River and conquer the Promised Land, like their fathers should have done 40 years before. And the concern is, you know, based upon their track record and everything we know so far about the Israelites, there's a lot of worry that they will not be faithful to their covenant agreement with the Lord. And so chapter 32 is a song that Moses uh, uh, is taught by God to teach the people to try to keep them faithful. And it starts out uh, in the first couple of verses just appealing for the people to listen. And then in verses 3 and 4, talking about the character of God. God is great. He's the rock. That is, he's strong. He's stable. You know, he's faithful. He's upright. He's a God you can count on and trust in. But verses 5 and 6, they have not in the past been faithful to God. They are perverse and corrupt and crooked. They have responded to the generosity and the blessings of God in a very, um, you know, unfaithful way. They, they've, they've responded uh, by turning away from God. You know, what a contrast between a reliable God and a nation that you can never trust to stay true. And then in 7 to 14... He talks about all the blessings that God had given them. Remember how God had chosen them and how he had uh, made them his special people, how he had brought him out of Egypt and taken great care of him in the wilderness. Just like an eagle's concern for her young, he spread out his wings and carried them. He guided them. Uh, He'd given them the wonderful land of Canaan which uh, was just such a great blessing, so many uh, things that he'd done uh, for them by giving them that. And the promised land, as he says in Deuteronomy 32, 13, the promised land, even the rocks, yielded wonderful produce. It's just a great place. So that's all God had done for them, but, but they, once God blessed them so much, grew fat and kicked. You know, instead of being grateful and appreciative of God's blessings, they sort of became self-satisfied and proud and rebellious against God, and they went after strange gods. Uh, They sacrificed to demons who were not gods, to gods who were, um, you know, uh, later inventions, not the true God, but upstart gods that they imported from pagan nations. And they forgot the God who gave them birth, the rock who begot them. Just outrageous when you think about all that the Lord had done, that they had responded to him in such unfaithful ways, just so harmful, so discouraging to see them doing that. And so as a result of that, God punished them. God uh, turned away from them. Since they had made him jealous with no gods, he was going to make them jealous with, with uh, no peoples uh, invading and destroying them. God was punishing them. And really, God could have punished them even more. They deserved it. But in verse uh, 26 of Deuteronomy 32, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. 
I will remove the memory of them from men. That's pretty much uh, the final punishment. If you remove the memory of them from men, you blot them out so much nobody even remembers them. However, he would have said that, verse 27, had I not feared the provocation by the enemy that their adversaries would misjudge, that they would say, our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done all this. He was afraid that the nations would see this as their victory and not as God's judgment. That they would think that God was just a loser God and that they were these powerful nations that had uh, vanquished the Lord. God was trying to salvage his reputation among the nations and therefore he decided not to give the punishment that really Israel deserved. And, and he has this uh, section, this is the last stuff we looked at the other, uh, when we were at, in the year-end study, and I want to kind of uh, think through this again with you. Starting in verse 28, the pronouns are challenging. For they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Now, I understand verse 30 fairly easily. The point is, there is no way that Israel could have been defeated so quickly if it had not been for God turning against them. It wasn't that the nations were more powerful than God. It's that their rock has sold them. Their rock has turned away from them and turned against them because of their unfaithfulness. But the question is, who is the they are a nation in verse 28? There's two options for that. Maybe he's talking about Israel. Maybe he's talking about these pagan nations that he's been speaking of in verse 27, who he's afraid we're going to think that they were just more powerful than God. I'm going to take that second option, but I'm not confident about that. I think he's saying that he's worried that the nations will misjudge this and will think they just defeated the Lord because they don't have any understanding. He wishes that those nations were wise enough that they understood these things and that they realized that God, that, that, that Israel could have never been destroyed if it hadn't been for God turning against them. But those nations don't have that kind of wisdom and discernment. And, and therefore God chose not to destroy Israel as thoroughly as what Israel really deserved. And, and so then he comes back in verse 31 and he says, Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom, from the fields of Gomorrah. Their, their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Um, so, you know, they, they are from the same stock as Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, they're, they're very wicked. Um, so, I think he's saying that the nations would have misunderstood and to preserve his reputation, he is not punishing as thoroughly as he would have, should have, could have, um, because he wants to preserve that reputation. 
Um, so that's really where we've come to, I think, more or less, as we studied uh, in the year-end study. And this section, 26 to 33, is just more difficult because it's hard. It's not hard to understand the point. It's hard to understand who the bays are. And it may even shift in the middle of it. It's just very difficult for me to be sure about that. Do you have some questions or comments up through 33? Yes. So who did you say the they was in verse 28 for they are a nation? I think the pagan nations, the Gentile nations. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a little better. Although, you know, if we understand the point, it doesn't matter a lot. You know, because essentially both the pagan nations and Israel, neither one of them really understood so it fits pretty well either way. But I think it's a little better to see this as the pagan nations. So he's just following up on 27, that he didn't destroy them because those nations would have thought they won the victory. You see a lot of that same approach in places like Daniel 9 and so forth. Will you see how uh, God is is worried, you know, Daniel's worried for the Lord's reputation. You know, Moses would say that as he interceded for the people. You know, if you destroy them, then what are what are the Egyptians going to think? What are the nations going to think? You know, there's a concern uh, on the Lord's part for, for uh, defending his reputation. All right, so we're in Deuteronomy 32. Would somebody go ahead and read then 34 to 43? Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Alright, so you've got the vengeance of God in verse 34 and 35 against Israel's enemies. Now God used their enemies as instruments to punish them and then he turns his retribution against them. After all, Vengeance belongs to God and retribution. So in due time, the foot of the enemies will slip. Their day of calamity is approaching. That's the idea that we see right here, is the idea of God punishing the the instruments he used to punish his people. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, which is verse 36. So, 
you know, God is ultimately going to bless His people. But when does He bless His people in verse 36? And when they recognize that their strength is gone. How could God bless His people until they see they can't do it for themselves? Because if God blesses His people while they're still self-confident and prideful, what will happen? They'll think that they had some part in it. Exactly! They'll glorify themselves, they'll be prideful, instead of recognizing that God is the source of their strength. That's the danger. Why can't God bless us sometimes? Because we wouldn't recognize that He was the one who was the source of the blessing. You know, it would hurt us if God blessed us while we were still self-confident and feeling self-sufficient, it would just confirm us in our own prideful self-image. So sometimes the reason God can't bless us is because we're not humble enough to take it without it really hurting us. That's something to really uh, reflect on, because that may be what keeps us back from being blessed by God. You think about, why, why, couldn't, why couldn't God afford to uh, maybe let us, uh, um, you know, have victories in teaching the gospel to the lost and bring him to the Lord? Well, if it's going to just make us think, wow, we're so good, we're so capable, look at all that I have done. That may perpetrate a greater spiritual disaster than not. You know, God can bless us when we really know He's the source of our strength and we're going to be giving Him the credit instead of glorifying ourselves. So I think that's something to really think about. You know, because it may be the very thing that keeps us from being useful servants to the Lord is we never recognize the Lord as the source of our blessings. Thoughts and comments about that? I had a thought, but it was kind of the last section. That's fine. Speak. Just when you're talking about the uh, the nations uh, that they were without wisdom, see what was really happening. So God refrained from judging Israel like He might have otherwise done, and that what He was concerned about was His reputation. I think that's what we're coming. Yes. With. Yes. Absolutely. And I thought you know, I, we were just Hezekiah when he prayed about God delivering. Judah, his prayer was that God, they would know that God was God alone. His concern was predominantly God's reputation. Judah certainly didn't deserve being delivered because of their sinfulness, but he was concerned about God's name. And um, the psalmists are a lot of times concerned about God's name being vindicated, therefore delivered. I just wonder, you know, in our prayers sometimes, when I pray for somebody else that they'll overcome some kind of obstacles, some kind of temptations, some kind of battle they're facing. You know, I probably need to spend more time appealing to God on the basis of His reputation and His namesake and that the enemies won't blaspheme Him because you know, this person's falling into their sin for His namesake rather than just you know, it's good to pray for the person Absolutely. Really, in our whole focus, we need to think more in terms of the Lord and His glory. What do you do 
when say somebody is doing really well spiritually somebody is growing and being transformed you know our tendency might be to congratulate the person to praise the person to to tell them you know how great they are or even just how encouraging they are would it not be better if we use that occasion to praise the lord and say you know wow i just really am uh, impressed by what the Lord is doing in you and by how gracious and merciful he's being in changing you and strengthening you and maturing you. I think that's what Paul would have done. You know, he wouldn't have hesitated to express his awareness of their growth or their their strength or their gifts, but he would have he would have thanked God. He was he would have expressed how how much that praised the glory of God's grace. Instead of using it as almost a temptation to feel prideful and self-confident. If we looked at things from a more God-centered perspective, it would be so much better. It would be more accurate. Yeah, Monica. And if we looked at ourselves more as, we really saw ourselves as servants. I mean, really. Because, I mean, to say to someone, well, God is using you in his service. He is bringing glory and name through you. You know, thinking of ourselves rather than, this person or, or ourselves are being elevated, thinking of ourselves as, as being humble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we've got to change how we look at those things ourselves. This is not just a matter that we get the right words. We really see that God is the source of the strength of the blessings of the grace. And so we're eager to give credit properly. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you'd almost instinctively feel that. I mean, um, you know, if, if, if something really, uh, there's some good thing that happened and people started crediting the wrong person, you know, you might say, wait a minute, really, this person's the one who deserves the credit. They're the one who did it. Well, really, it's God who deserves the credit. We ought to feel that instinctively. Travis? I've always been struck by both Joseph and Daniel when they're presented with this opportunity to interpret these great dreams, both of their response is to the effect of, it's not in me. Right. It is God who is interpreting the dream. And that's their, just their initial first response. Is When they're put in this position of spectacle, their reaction is to say, no, 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 this is not in me. Because don't we instinctively feel that? If somebody gives us the credit, it really belongs to somebody else. We feel kind of embarrassed about that. We want to make sure people understand, actually, that wouldn't be that did that. It was so-and-so. Because we kind of feel like awkward about, you know, you're, you're, telling, you're praising me, but really, I didn't have anything to do with it. You just thought it was me. It was really that person. But really, we ought to feel that with the Lord. You know, we ought to, we ought to say, wait a minute, it really wasn't me. It was God. Like, you threw me off. I'm just sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I do that all the time. I talk too much. Other thoughts? Alright, so, uh, in verse 37, then, you know, he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Now, remember he's been calling God the rock. You know, look back at verse uh, 4, look back at verse uh, 15 and 18 and so forth. Well, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. The fact is... The gods the people have chosen are just pebbles. <laughs> you know, they're not any rock. You know, they're not strong. They're not steady and steadfast. You can't build on them. You know, 
So uh, these gods are not helping them. You know, they don't provide safety and security and victory. And when it's all said and done, verse 39, see now that I, I am he and there's no God besides me. It's I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it's I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So God is left alone. You know, he's unique, he's supreme, he's all-powerful. There's no other God who can even come close to the Lord. Now, this is the song they need to be singing. This is their national anthem that Moses is training them to sing to where they'd be constantly remembering, even musically, the greatness of God, the superiority of God, and be remembering those, those other gods are nothing. They're no rock. They can't provide shelter. They can't provide deliverance. There is no stability in them. You want the rock, not those rocks. You know, God is the one who has the strength to defeat his enemies. He says in verse 41, If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. And my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. God uses his weapons against his enemies. Um, you know, he had, uh, uh, he had, he had used his arrows uh, against uh, Israel back in verse 23, but then he turns his arrows against Israel's enemies and defeats them. It's just a scene of total carnage. You know, God... You know, shedding the blood of his enemies. Reminds you of the picture in Revelation 19, Jesus with the robe dipped in blood. The blood of his victims, of his uh, vanquished enemies. Now, get get a good look at 41 and 42. And think about this idea of God defeating the enemy. God defeating the nations. God defeating those who were opposed to his people. Because verse 43 is going to give you a double take. I think verse 43 is interesting and helpful. Sometimes we may miss it. But but certainly, passages that seem startling often teach us something. We've just got to think about them for a while. Verse 43 in the context seems startling to me. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Does that seem to kind of not fit very well? He's telling them to rejoice over their own destruction. Exactly! I could see him saying, Rejoice, O Israel! Your enemies are being destroyed. It's hard to see him saying, Rejoice, enemies, you're being destroyed! Or maybe not. Why should the enemies of God's people rejoice in their own destruction? Because it's only through that that they will come to the Lord. Absolutely. Their only hope is in the Lord destroying them, in destroying their self-confidence and their uh, imagination (laughs) that their gods will save them and all that. They have to be defeated and destroyed to turn to the Lord and have open the Lord. You know that this snatch of verse from verse 43 is quoted in the New Testament. And that's interesting. It's quoted in Romans 15. 
And the point Paul is making in Romans 15 is how Christ is both a blessing to Jews and Gentiles. He says in Romans 15.8, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. And he strings together quotations that show that Jesus is a servant to bless the Gentiles with God's mercy. So he says in verse 9, Therefore I'll give praise to you among the Gentiles. And then verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's the quotation from here in Deuteronomy 32. And then again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And there's this root of Jesse that will rule over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles hope. Gentiles meaning the nations, these, these enemies. So the hope For the nations was in Jesus. But they would never turn to Jesus until they were defeated. Until God took away all their hope and all their future and everything they could trust in and rely on. So ironically, the nations should rejoice when God defeats them because their only hope is in God defeating them so they'll turn back to Him for grace and strength. You know, Look at Isaiah uh, 27 for a minute. This reminds me a little bit of this this irony. Uh, God just says a lot of things in the prophets that, that really make you think. And Isaiah 27 is how God is blessing his vineyard, his people. And he's He's just really uh, doing everything he can for his vineyards. Look at Isaiah 27 too. In that day a vineyard of wine sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle? Obviously briars and thorns are a threat to a vineyard. You might also think they're a product of the curse in Genesis 3. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle? Then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. I'm going to be deaf on the briars and thorns. Nothing's going to, you know, uh, uh, threaten my people, my vineyard. Or, verse 5, let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. He's threatening to wipe out, to incinerate the briars and thorns, and then suddenly, or let the briars and thorns turn to me and make peace with me, and I'll bless them. When you see God, who's zealous for his people, suddenly holding out the olive branch to the briars and the thorns, and offering to be reconciled with them, you understand that God's ultimate purpose is to be gracious even to the nations, if there's any way to get them to humble themselves and turn to him. That's what God really wants to do. Even God's destruction of the enemies of his people ultimately has a gracious purpose if they will recognize it in causing them to humble themselves and turn to him for blessing, for forgiveness, and for hope. God wants to bless even his enemies, but they'll never be blessed until they're defeated and they recognize that their only hope is in the Lord. I think that's just really a profound statement in this song. Thoughts and comments? Alright, so uh, that's the song. That's what they needed to say. And uh, things you sing, you remember. You know, and they can, they can affect you. I, I, we need to uh, take good songs 
and sing them and sing them privately, sing them in our head, you know, think about the words, you know, songs kind of stick with you, maybe sometimes better than other things because of the musical quality. So God wants those ideas, those spiritual thoughts kind of reverberating, you know, in us and affecting us. That's the hope. They can learn this song and keep singing it. Maybe it'll strengthen them to have the right spirit. So 44 to 47. And Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua, the son of Nun. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words of which I am warning you today, which you shall command to your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross to the Jordan to possess. Alright, so there's what Moses is saying. Here's the words of this song. Take to your heart all the words I'm warning to you. You see that as a theme of Deuteronomy. Seek the Lord with all your heart. Love the Lord with all your heart. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Fix his words in your heart. What you do stems from the heart. Guard your heart. You know, and here, you know, take all these words to your heart. You know, put them in you. People sometimes do their Bible reading. Kind of like they say their prayers. You know, they go to church. You know, it becomes just kind of a routine. It's kind of a ritual. I'm paying my dues. I'm getting my obligation, my chores done. So one of my chores is my Bible reading. One of my chores is saying my prayer. One of my chores is going to church. You know, one of my chores is eating the Lord's Supper. You know, it just becomes a list of tasks. Do you see how different this is from that? There are plenty of people who do their Bible reading every day, who the Word never gets inside of them. They just did their reading. Even secularly. You know, especially if you're like studying for school or something. You know, you're supposed to read this boring novel. You ever read a half a dozen pages and thought, I have no idea what I just read. I have no idea what just happened. I read every word. But I just called the words. I don't know what I'm talking about. I didn't pay any attention. I was thinking about something else. You know, I do that. You know, I'm reading something and I get to the end of a couple pages and I'm like, I wonder what that said. I have no idea. We do that. How many times have you read the Bible before? You read a chapter, you read your three chapters for the day or whatever you were reading for the day, you get to the end, you don't know what you read. It can't stick in your head. You never got it into your head. He wants us to take all the words to our heart. We've got to treasure them up inside of us. They've got to really mold and shape our thinking and our attitude and our behavior. So it's got to be more than just doing our Bible reading. Maybe read it over and over again. Maybe memorize it. Maybe read it out loud. Maybe write it out. You know, maybe focus, fo- force yourself to go back and look at it again. Maybe force yourself to say, what did I just read? And, and keep reading it until you can say in your own words, here's what this is saying to me. I see what he's saying. 
But it's got to be something that's inside of us. That's what Moses wants. That's why he kept stressing the heart all through Deuteronomy. You'd be interesting study just to go back and look up the word heart and just trace it through Deuteronomy and see how many things the heart needs to be involved with. Because this is how they will prolong their days in the land. All right, comments or questions on that section, Monica? I think it's important, though, if we know we're not in the right, if we don't have the right heart at the time or we're, we're struggling, I, can, I think it's important to make an effort. Sure. Because I know sometimes people will say, I'm not doing well spiritually, so I'm not going to pray, read the Bible. Whatever. Well, I feel like you do the best you can. I'm not saying you finish reading it and you don't know what you read and you just close your Bible and walk away. But at the same time, the way we get our hearts right sometimes is by make, by deciding we're going to do that. And we have to make ourselves focus and we have to do something, you know, and... And maybe it's not exciting at the moment to sit down and read the Bible like it should be or whatever, but I think it's important not to give up because staying away from it doesn't help that get better. That's a very good point. I agree with that. It, what we need to avoid is just being satisfied with a mechanical approach. But it certainly, if it comes to reading the Bible, the Bible is so helpful and so valuable. It's worth reading even if we don't get as much out of it as would be ideal. You know, I've, I've suggested this before. Are there moments when your mind is really focused, and when you're really attentive, and when you're really into it? And let's say you read a, you read a chapter, and you have, I don't know what would be good, 75% retention out of that chapter after reading it. Well, now, what happens if you're really having a bad day, you're really distracted, you're not doing as well, and you have 15% retention. Is it worth reading for the 15% retention? Yeah, you're going to have to read it six times to get up to 75. But hey, 15% is better than nothing. For sure. It's always better to do what you can and get as much as you can out of it. Maybe you'll take more time uh, or whatever. But, but it's better the 15% than nothing. That's for sure. What you don't want is just say, I got through it. I'm great. No, it's not that. It's not just checking off your task. But we do things as well as we can, and we keep growing in them. And the perfectionist who says, if I can't do it perfectly, I won't do it at all, reminds me of the one talent man who's like, if I don't have a guarantee, I'll gain you know, 500% on my investment. I'm not even going to bother. The Lord wasn't too happy with that. Other thoughts? Yeah, Travis. I think the fact that it is a growth process is important. I yes. think at times in my life I've become frustrated when I, you know, you read the Bible and you just don't find it as thrilling or as as you would like to, and and that can be frustrating to me at times. But then I think about when I first started studying opera, and it's and it's just awful at first, and, and but you have to like force yourself to to focus on it and to soak it in and eventually you come to appreciate it and you come to it, it gets deeper in you I guess is what we're talking about and so it's the same process I think in my mind I have to remind myself that there's not some different thing that's supposed to happen with the Bible it's the same kind of growth that needs to happen absolutely You've seen that in your own life. There's kind of a threshold you have to get to before you even kind of understand enough to start appreciating and enjoying it. 
you probably had that with other things. I mean, I don't know what you're into, but I, but but I bet you some of those things. Maybe there's Lord of the Rings or something. You know, when you first start into some of that stuff, it's like there's so much stuff in it that it's hard to it's hard to get wrap your mind around it. It's hard to figure out who's what and what's who and you know all that. And, but once you get into it far enough, then you start identifying with it and it starts meaning a lot more to you. And some of the things you most enjoy at first were really tough and they weren't, they didn't come to you as well. Like, I just think even in that respect, sometimes just being honest with the Lord and praying to Him and just saying, I can't stand to read your word right now. I'm horrible. I'm terrible. And, and really just being honest with it and saying, but I know I'm wrong. I really need your help. That can turn the corner because not because it's some kind of psychological thing, but because the Lord will really hear and humble heart. And he knows the challenges I think that we face. Excellent advice. I would agree exactly. That we need to be honest and open. And the Lord is patient and merciful. And you know, he will help us, especially when we are honest and seeking to change and asking him for help. And frankly, I mean is there any one of us who hasn't found Bible reading boring sometimes? I mean, I think we all do, don't we? Is there any one of us who hasn't found prayer sometimes just a chore? Or even worship to be something that's rather tedious and just not very enjoyable? We have those moments. I mean, sometimes those moments are just not even that worrisome. Sometimes we just have some ups and downs in our in our enthusiasm about life in general, about everything. You know, I remember uh, listening to Paul uh, to uh, Bill Hall's sermon on when your spiritual light burns low. And sometimes it's just there are some more enthusiastic times than others. Sometimes it's more worrisome because of the cause of those things. But we keep going and seeking and asking the Lord's help, and it is a growth process. And uh, I remember especially in reading the Bible when I was 12, 13, 14, I had a conscience and so I made myself read, sort of. You know, I give myself a goal, 30 minutes a day, I can remember. But man, it's so hard to do that when you don't enjoy it. So it'd be an hour tomorrow. You know, an hour and a half the next day. You know, I got some reading in, but I also had to give myself a pardon every once in a while because I got so far in debt. You know, and but I made myself a good part of the time, but I hated it. I really did. And if you'd have told me when I was 13 or 14 that I would come to where I really, really honestly enjoyed reading the Bible, I would have said, there's no limit. I'll never enjoy it. Maybe I can get to where I can discipline myself enough to make myself do it. Part of it is I didn't understand it very well. I hadn't gotten far enough into it. It didn't mean a lot to me. Especially, you know, prophets and things like that. I was trying to read a whole Bible. And so someone was just like, I don't get this, and when they identify with it, it and, you know, but I eventually got to where I did enjoy it. I actually wanted to spend more time doing it than what I allocated, which is really amazing. But those things will grow on you, and grow in you if you'll keep working on it, and keep trying, and keep wanting it. Good points. There are lots of things to think about on various angles of that. Other thoughts? Alright, well, 48 to 52. The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, 
and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kedesh, at the wilderness of Zen, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see in the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. Well, remember, Moses isn't going to get to go into the promised land, which is practically a theme of Deuteronomy. It's talked about so much. And God says, go up to Mount Nebo and look at the land, but you can't touch it. You can't get in, you can't set foot in it, but you can look at it and then die on the mountain. Because he had not upheld the holiness of God, the people had not been shown that the water can come out of the rock just by Moses' word that God had authorized him to speak. And because he hadn't glorified God, because he hadn't been faithful, because he hadn't treated God as holy, he was going to die. You know, even the greatest will fall if they're not faithful. And he says in verse 50, Then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people. That's a common phrase in the Old Testament, being gathered to your people. And there's debate about what does that mean? What were they saying when they said be gathered to your people? Here's one thought. You know, some people think that that means like you're buried in the family tomb. You know, you've got the family graveyard. And so you're gathered to your people. Your body is buried in this family cemetery. But if that's what that meant... This doesn't exactly fit, does it? Moses wasn't buried. Yeah. But we don't know where he was buried. The Lord took care of that however he chose to take care of that. This is not saying, go be buried in the family cemetery. So what does it mean for Moses to be gathered to his people? Seems to me like there is some concept of Moses' spirit going to be with his people before the Lord. That this is not just a body thing, maybe not a body thing at all. And, and uh, there are so many hints in the Old Testament of there being something beyond this life. You know, now, I, I wouldn't say that, that the Old Testament presents as many details and as much clarity about exactly what happens with the Judgment Day and, and heaven and hell and all that. It's not as spelled out, but it's there in a lot of passages that I'm not sure how you would explain if there wasn't something beyond this life that they were even thinking about. Uh, they may not have understood all about it, and I wouldn't argue that every person in the Old Testament understood that. I don't think Job did. But but there was there's, there's certainly a lot of revelation. You remember what Hebrew writers said, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were looking for a city that has foundations. That they were, they didn't, uh, they weren't looking to go back to their homeland on this earth. That they were looking for a true home. I don't know that they understood all that we are able to understand about that, but they understood there was something more than this life. So I think that's there's an indication in that. There's not the main point of the section, but I think that's a good passage to show that gathered to his people is not just being buried in the family cemetery. All right, questions or comments on this section?
<coughs> Sarah. I wonder if it was a bit of, it was a comfort and a consolation to Moses to know that Aaron had also been gathered to his people. That yes. He had been. Aaron also didn't get to go into the promised land and, and all of these things, and but that he was forgiven in some sense and counted worthy of, of being gathered to the people, of being part of the people of God still. Yes. Just like Moses. Because it's kind of, <clears throat> I have to admit, it's, it's uh, you got to think about what Moses might have been thinking. Okay, go up on the mountain, Moses. Take a look. Then you're going to die. Yeah. Um, I know this, I knew this day was coming, but <coughs> are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything we see, even from Deuteronomy 3, this was very disappointing to Moses. He was begging the Lord, and the Lord finally just said, don't talk to me anymore about it. You're not going in. I mean, it's just really, uh, wow, actions have consequences. All right. Well, you know, so Moses is dying, um, but what does a father do? Moses has been like a father to this nation. What does a father do right before his death? Yeah, it's a really common thing. You can see that in various passages. This is particularly compares with Jacob's blessing of his children in Genesis 49. Kind of a similar sort of thing. You can see several other passages that do something similar.